Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. When one imagines the setting for a story involving experimental weapons, international espionage, unexplained aerial anomalies, and Cold War anxieties, they probably aren't picturing a tranquil island in Newfoundland. But in reality, there's no imagining about it. Belle Island, Newfoundland is just that. This all stems from a still unexplained aerial explosion that rocked the skies above the island and set in motion a series of bizarre events that seemed pulled straight from the pages of a science fiction novel. The entire ordeal still leaves those who lived through it scratching their heads. But one thing is without question. For a moment, in 1978, Canadian and American satellites detected more light reflecting from the island than what was seen during the bombing of Hiroshima. And we still aren't certain exactly why. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, our topic is the Bell Island boom. Yeah, well, it was a terrific explosion so sudden that it was just like a blockbuster dropped, like they dropped them in the parachutes there in London, eh? You know, and they shook the house, eh? All over the tiny settlement of Lance Cove and Bell Island, people reported things like that. Television sets all of a sudden appeared to explode and began smoking. Electric motors burned out. Little balls of fire came out through the glass and oven doors. Even an old clock that hadn't worked in years, wasn't even wound up, suddenly went mad. With the amount of secrecy, hearsay, and conjecture that surrounds the Bell Island boom, it's difficult to determine a logical starting point for the telling of the story. To me, it makes the most sense to begin a year prior to the Bell Island boom and first describe another series of aerial events that many theorize may have led to the incredible climax that we'll slowly work our way towards. This sort of opening act begins with a series of civilian complaints to aviation officials in late 1977. Basically, people from the eastern coast of North America were being disturbed by a series of loud blasts that seemed to be coming from high in the skies. Although the reports came from locations ranging anywhere from Florida to Nova Scotia, they were strikingly similar. Explosions were being heard, coming from the skies above, but not from any specific direction. It was as though the entire sky periodically sounded a low-pitched horn that made anyone who heard its bones vibrate. To deepen the mystery of these blasts a little bit further, some of the reports concerning the booms heard at nighttime stated that the sounds were accompanied by odd lights in the sky. And not like anything similar to lightning, these lights appeared to be stationary, pulsating balls of light that came and went in a matter of seconds. Now, these reports may sound a little weird, some odd lights and some sounds in the sky, but keep in mind this story is set in the late 70s and tensions are still high from the ongoing Cold War. This kind of thing was taken very seriously and very quickly concerns were raised to government about what may be responsible for the consistent, yet randomly timed blasts. 
In fact, the mystery was escalated all the way to then-U.S. President Jimmy Carter, who tasked the American Department of Defense with determining the cause and finding a solution. Given the nature and scope of the topic, the U.S. Department of Defense assigned the case to their Naval Research Board, a specialized research division often involved in top-secret weapons developments and testing. It took the Naval Research Board a period of just three months to conclude their investigation and release a report summarizing their findings. In basic terms, they connected the aerial disturbances with the flight paths of supersonic jets, specifically the Concorde. Their theory was that as these jets passed the speed of sound, they created sonic booms that were bouncing off the atmosphere and being directed back down to Earth's citizens. They ended their report by presenting a simple solution. Move the flight path of these jets a little further out to sea, and that way, any booms they create aren't going to bother anyone. Now, on its surface, their findings and solution made sense. However, nearly every aspect of the report was panned by a group of prominent atmospheric scientists. The opposing scientists argued that they found no relationship between the blasts and the air traffic data, with several of the most intense booms happening at times when supersonic jets weren't even in the sky. Also, their data showed that the blasts weren't occurring during major American holidays such as Christmas, despite there being heavy air traffic at those times. The most vocal opponent of the Naval Research Board's findings was Columbia University Chief of Atmospheric Science, Dr. William Don, who blasted the report for being based on flawed scientific principles and suggesting that the military may even have been involved. He also claimed the report failed to answer the question associated with the odd lights. The following audio is from a 1978 CBC report on this event. In it, you can hear some of Dr. Dom's comments on the Naval Research Board's investigation. Uh, they initially said that the special atmospheric conditions allowed the booms to be channeled from great distances. I disagree with this because the conditions were not that special and there was nothing new about the conditions this year. There are some events that have not yet been explained. For example, during the main boom season in this country, there have been many uh, observ uh, observations of uh, nocturnal balls of light in the sky associated with booms. And uh, some were seen by respectable and responsible authorities, like, like airplane pilots, who are usually uh, good observers. You know, they, uh, they took Christmas week off, they took weekends off, so it looked like a normal uh, workday activity of, uh, of this country rather than uh, of some foreign power that wouldn't be concerned with weekends or, uh, or, or, or our observance of the Christmas holidays. Despite the strong opposition from Dr. Don and other members of the scientific community, the government sided with the research board's findings and went ahead with their recommendation to change the flight path of the supersonic jets. And almost immediately, there was an improvement. The boom seemed to stop completely in some areas and be much quieter in others. But as we now know, this relief would only be temporary. Just two weeks later, a boom unlike any before it would occur. And when it does, Belle Island, Newfoundland would find its name forever added to the lexicon of conspiracy theorists around the world. 
We'll get to that next. Bell Island sits near the eastern tip of North America. Known for its wealth of high-quality iron ore deposits, Bell Island's economy and population began to grow rapidly after mining operations began in 1890. These mining operations eventually would go on to form one of the largest and most elaborate underwater mines the world has ever seen. But as the depth of the mine grew, the cost to maintain the mine matched its pace until it got to a point where it became economically impractical to continue. Ultimately, the mining operations ceased in 1966, and as you'd expect, the population began a steep decline. By 1978, at the point the flight paths of the supersonic jets were moved, Bell Island's population were at some of their lowest points. But for those who did stay on the island, things were just about to get interesting. As I mentioned earlier, for a period of two weeks after diverting the supersonic flights, the problem seemed to be largely resolved. However, in hindsight, it now seems as though the blasts were simply preparing for their final display of power and aggression. Bell Island's fishing and mining communities would have had no idea what was coming their way and no reason to expect anything unusual. Up until now, they hadn't been affected by the blasts that plagued the eastern coast of North America. And of course, the citizens of Bell Island, they were far removed from any research being conducted by the American Department of Defense. But that's going to change soon. On a quiet Sunday, April 2nd, 1978, Without warning, the sleepy island was rocked by a single, deafening blast. To get an idea of the blast's power, a witness who was nearly 30 kilometers from where what was later determined to be ground zero described the sound as being similar to thunder, except instead of the thunder coming from high above in the sky, it sounded like it was happening inside his ear. And again, that's at a distance of 30 kilometers. Now, as quick as the blast rocked the small island, the citizens of Bell Island reacted by first checking in on each other's well-being and then trying to understand what had just happened. As the citizens began contacting friends, family, and emergency personnel, unusual stories began to pile up, and it quickly became clear that something really interesting was going on. Those on the outskirts of the most heavily affected area assumed it was a severe thunder or lightning type event. But to those closer to the center of the blast radius, it was obvious what had occurred was not a natural weather event at all. The first calls to the local police and fire departments led emergency responders to assume that they were dealing with some kind of large explosion or possibly a collapse of one of those underground mine tunnels. But as the reports continued to come in, many hinted at something much more bizarre. In addition to the loud blasts, the callers were also reporting a variety of anomalous events, ranging from odd to basically supernatural. Multiple Bell Islanders described a haze of metallic-tasting dust slowly falling from the sky. But in other reports that mentioned that same metallic haze, it was described as rising from the ground to the sky, as if some unseen magnet was pulling the dust from the abandoned iron mines deep below the island. But it gets weirder than that. Multiple residents both on and off the island described seeing balls of fire or orbs of bright light that suddenly appeared and immediately vanished without leaving any obvious trace. 
These reports seem to be describing the same odd balls of light that were reported by many witnesses to the booms that rattled the eastern seaboard of the United States in the months prior. Now, to put the phenomenon I'm discussing in a better context, initially the reports spanned an area roughly 100 kilometers wide. For every report received from Bell Island, there was another from the mainland. So in the beginning, not only was the cause of this blast a mystery, but so too was the location. But an early hint that Bell Island may have been ground zero came from a handful of witnesses situated on the mainland. The first report of this type came from a couple who happened to be near the coastline facing the waters that divide them from Bell Island. These witnesses described hearing the boom, but at the same time seeing a bright beam of light being cast down from the sky to Bell Island at a roughly 45 degree angle. This beam of light was described as having a similar appearance to a bolt of lightning. However, it was perfectly straight and it maintained both its position and brilliance during the entirety of the boom, a period lasting anywhere from two to four seconds. Other witnesses described the same beam, but went a step further by describing an even brighter orb within the broader beam, almost like a pea traveling through a straw. The orb within the beam was seen descending from the sky down to the island, with the blast ending just as the orb met the island. Now, as odd as that all sounds, what we've talked about so far was only based on the reports made by people in the mid to far reaches of the blast radius. Next, we'll get into the more unusual and destructive phenomenon that played out in what was later determined to be Ground Zero. This is the stuff that would make the Bell Island boom legendary. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Edward Bennett, a lifetime resident of Bell Island, was the first to contact the fire department concerning unusual electrical activity during the blast, something that would become a very common experience for those in the inner circle of the boom's radius. In Mr. Bennett's case, at the time of the boom, he was seated in his kitchen table, eating lunch and watching the small black and white TV he kept on his countertop. This mundane scene of a middle-aged man eating a sandwich in front of a television became much more interesting as soon as the boom occurred. Just as it sounded, the television set exploded in front of him as if dynamite had detonated from behind the curved glass screen. As Bennett got to his feet, he admittedly was seeing double, if not triple, as a result of the still-ongoing blast. But despite being disoriented, he could clearly see thin jets of blue flame being projected out of the power outlets on the wall near where he was seated. 
Once the blast had resolved, Bennett was standing in the middle of his kitchen, stunned with a half-eaten sandwich, a host needing a full electrical replacement, and a hell of a story to tell. But for a small group of people who lived near him, his story wouldn't be completely unique. The reports of electronic anomalies increased in both intensity and oddness the closer they came to the center of the boom's radius. And as far as the very center, ground zero so to speak, the Bell Island boom seemed to have occurred directly above a small piece of farmland owned by Mr. James Bickford. The damage to his property and the experience of those in and around it during the blast seem much more appropriate in a science fiction novel than on a sparsely populated island in eastern Canada. When the fire department would eventually arrive to the Bickford property, any theories being developed about the cause of this boom have been turned on their heads. James Bickford, much like Edward Bennett, who we had just discussed, was in his home relaxing on a quiet Sunday when his world quite literally was turned upside down. From his position on Bell Island, the blast was so intense and so powerful that his memories of what he did during and immediately after have never been able to fully surface. His only memory of the actual blast was an intense bright light and a feeling that the entire world was vibrating. He next remembered lying on the floor, fearing his home was about to collapse on top of him. Nearly on instinct, the disoriented James Bickford charged out of his home, fully expecting to see the island leveled by whatever massive event had just occurred. But for the most part, it looked like a peaceful day. There was the weird smell in the air, and it was oddly silent, but it seemed like a regular Sunday. As he stepped out onto his front door and made his way towards his driveway, he realized that this wasn't a regular day at all. The first sign of problems were three large craters in his lawn, two of which were about waist deep and just as wide. When he looked into the pits, there was no sign of what could have caused them. There were no burn marks, no shovel marks, no signs of explosives. It looked as if the soil and rock had simply jumped into the air on its own. He next noticed damage to the small but sturdy barn in the rear of his home that he'd been using to raise chickens. The barn had partially collapsed, looking as though some mean-spirited giant pushed it over onto its side. Quickly, Bickford approached the barn, fearing for the chickens that lived inside. Without the sound of 50-ish upset chickens coming from the building's ruins, he imagined the livestock must have escaped. However, when he stuck his head in a window frame, he was able to get a glimpse inside at his worst-case scenario. All of his chickens were dead, the majority of which had blood oozing from their eyes and mouths. But again, like the pits he just saw on his lawn, there was no obvious sign of injuries or burn marks on the animals or anything that one would expect from an explosion or a lightning strike. Just as he was surveying the damage to this barn, his son Darren pulled into the driveway on his bike, and he was nearly hysterical. As it turned out, Darren was just down a dirt road from his house when the blast occurred, and it seems that he had an up-close and personal encounter with one of those fireballs or light orbs that were described in prior accounts as accompanying some of the blasts. Darren's testimony was that as the blast occurred, he immediately stopped his bike, believing that an atomic bomb was being dropped. Only feet in front of him, a brilliantly lit blue orb appeared and hovered just at eye level. Well, it was about three feet in diameter and it was a circle. 
and it was mostly blue, but had a little bit of orange on the edge of it, which sort of like sparks, little tiny sparks coming from it. He watched the orb for a moment until it suddenly vanished, leaving no trace. It was at this point that Mr. Bickford began to realize that all of these events were connected. And with that, he got in his vehicle and made his way to the local fire hall, as opposed to going back into his home. Now, I can only imagine what he told them when he arrived, but given the amount of strange reports that they'd been receiving, they took Mr. Bickford seriously and sent a fire investigator. And his findings, they were something else. After examining the Bickford firm, evidence was found to show that, like the others in the blast's inner radius, he had experienced intense electrical activity in his home. But it seemed altogether more severe than what others had reported. His electrical outlets were scorched, some electronics had exploded. But in this case, it got weirder. His fuse box, for example, had exploded with such power that the glass fuses shot from the box like red-hot bullets that eventually had to be pried out of the adjacent wall to be examined. Another odd discovery was made when the fire inspector found the source of a strange smell. Now, just as the investigator arrived at the Bickford firm, he noticed what was later described as the smell of burnt plastic. Eventually, the source of the smell was identified as coming from power lines leading to the Bickford property. Now, whatever the electrical issue was, the current that ended up passing through the electrical lines was so intense that it melted the black plastic insulation that covered them, leaving a trail of foul-smelling ash on the ground below the now-exposed wires. With it obvious that the local authorities were in well over their heads in determining the cause and origin of the Bell Island boom, the matter was then escalated to the federal government. However, little did the local officials know, but both the Canadian and American Defense Departments were already well aware that something had happened on Bell Island. They were already in the process of organizing a team to investigate some strange reports from a national defense satellite. As we now know, defense scanners had detected more light being emitted from the area than what occurred during the bombing of Hiroshima and enough electricity dispersed in just a matter of seconds to power a large city for several hours. Something truly unique had happened. And the very next day, a small team of scientists working on behalf of the Canadian government visited the island and shortly after released their statement on the cause of the Bell Island boom. Their opinion, which is now the official explanation, was that the boom was unrelated to the sonic booms being created by supersonic jets. Instead, they ruled that it was the effect of an extremely rare, yet very powerful type of lightning called ball lightning. An explanation that was widely panned by both the local residents as well as by the scientific community. No way that was lightning. What do you think it was? Explosion. It sounded like an explosion. Yes, explosion definitely was an explosion. I thought the whole house was gone in two. I thought it was the end of the world, so help me. Now, if I hadn't already made it clear, the Bell Island boom is often referenced in conspiracy theories, especially those involving experimental energy weapons. And here's where a lot of those conspiracy theories get their fuel. After the initial investigation and the release of the official cause, two altogether and seemingly much more involved investigations began into the cause of the boom. 
The first such investigation began with the unexpected arrival of some senior Canadian military personnel who were joined by two researchers with the American Weapons Lab in Los Alamos, New Mexico. For the unfamiliar, the Los Alamos lab had previously developed the atomic bomb and was at the time of the Bell Island boom were said to be working on top-secret weapons research that incorporated energy and laser technology. These researchers inspected the Bickford home and interviewed many witnesses. However, they were very guarded about what they were working on and were said to only speak to one another when out of earshot from anyone else. To describe their odd behavior, the local fire inspector who originally investigated the Bickford property had the following to say in a television documentary on this event. I gave them uh, exhibits that I had seized. They placed the, the exhibits in a, in a metal box uh, which was uh, properly locked and secured. They were very secretive. They, uh, if they wanted to discuss anything, they said, excuse us for a moment, and they went a distance, and uh, they wrote down notes. And they'd come back, and uh, they'd interview me again. The second investigation was even more puzzling. It started with a Russian general, accompanied by American and Canadian military personnel, arrived to the island. The investigation was said to include a tour of the island, visits to several affected properties, and eyewitness interviews. But little else is known about why a Russian general would be interested in the Bell Island event. Now, one has to wonder why these additional investigations by foreign defense officials would be necessary. Now, not surprisingly, no information related to these investigations was ever released. And over time, the Bell Island boom just became a strange but nearly forgotten piece of Newfoundland's colorful history. But within conspiracy theory circles, the Bell Island boom is still a hot topic that's discussed today. And of course, with so many disagreeing about the official cause of ball lightning, many alternate theories have been put forward. And they range from UFO events to a foreign government testing experimental weapons on unsuspecting citizens of a small island in Newfoundland. Now, I won't get into the theories now, as they'll be discussed in more detail during a follow-up episode where I'll be joined by my pals Scott and Forrest, the hosts of the incredible Astonishing Legends podcast. But let me say this, when everything is considered, the entirety of it all, something very special seemed to occur. If the original blasts attributed to the supersonic jets were unrelated to the Bell Island boom, it's a pretty odd coincidence. But then when you consider the reports from the many independent witnesses to the bizarre phenomenon that occurred on the island, it just doesn't sound natural to me. But one thing is for sure, something amazing did happen on Bell Island. And with that, I'll conclude this episode of Nighttime. I want to end by asking anyone with information related to the Bell Island boom to please get in touch with me. I'd love to learn more about it. Also, for anyone interested in watching the documentaries I referenced during this episode, I've added links to the episode notes. And now before I wrap this up, I want to end with some thanks. A huge shout out to the Canadian bands Vox Somnia and Paragon Cause who provided the musical and ambient themes for this episode. And of course, for the biggest thanks of all, a massive thank you to everyone who's listening, as without you, I'd have no reason to spend so much of my free time on the show. For anyone out there who wants more nighttime, check out my Patreon campaign, 
For a few dollars a month, you can access the ad-free premium feed, which provides early releases of the episodes. And then, for a couple dollars more, you can access the Nightcap After Show episodes in which I and a guest will climb even further down the rabbit holes. You can join by visiting patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. And with that said, I'd like to thank the current patrons of the show and welcome some new members to the group. Nathan, Levi, and Charles, I appreciate your generous support of Nighttime. And for anyone else who'd like to support the show but can't help financially, you can give me a big hand by telling your friends about me. If any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities on and off the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where my handle is at NighttimePod. If you have any story ideas or want to give feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you at NighttimePodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte. Hi. Her name is Elspeth. Elspeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. Better. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? <laughs> Elspeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV. Yeah.